Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Kyle Meng, Associate Professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management and the Department of Economics, and Co-Director for Climate and Energy of the Environmental Markets Lab, or MLAB, at UC Santa Barbara. I'll ask Kyle about the raft of recent policies that seek to reduce oil production and consumption in California over the next couple of decades. We'll talk about how those policies are likely to affect local communities in two major directions. First, what will the new policies mean for regions that depend on oil production and refining to support the local economy? And second, how might policies benefit those same communities that experience disproportionate harm from the industry's pollution? Stay with us. All right, Kyle Meng from UC Santa Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. Kyle, we are going to talk today about the state where you live, California, uh, and a host of issues related to oil production in California. But before we do that, we always ask people how they got interested in working on environmental issues, whether at a young age or later in life. So how did you find yourself working on this stuff? It's a good question. I've, I've been working on environmental issues and in particular on climate related issues for I think now almost two decades. I've been doing so wearing different hats. I was an engineer at one point. I briefly moonlighted as a journalist and then I also worked at um, environmental nonprofits um, and all kind of trying to understand the climate problem. And then at some point I realized there were so many open questions about how do we deal with climate change that I kind of wanted to go back to school and then it's like most things, once you uh, enter that world, you realize that that was just the tip of the iceberg. And <laughs> right. so I ended up uh, pursuing an academic career as an environmental economist uh, through grad school and now uh, in my current post at the University of California, Santa Barbara. That's great. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Is you, you touch the tip of the iceberg and then <laughs> like dove in after to find the rest of it. Yes, that's right. So as I mentioned, we're going to talk about oil in California today. And, you know, many of our audience members probably know this, but some probably don't. California is a major producer of oil and natural gas uh, and has been for a long time. So can you start us off by giving us a thumbnail sketch of the history of oil in California and also give us maybe a geographic sense of where most of the production takes place today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of the origins of the uh, California economy is very much wedded to the oil uh, industry, the crude oil industry. So, you know, shortly after the kind of, you know, gold rush of the mid 19th century, uh, a few decades afterwards, there was basically the oil boom. Um, by, you know, the turn of the century, California had become the leading oil producing state in the US, and it kind of was vying for that top uh, pole position, you know, between, you know, California and Texas and for many decades. Um, and for about, you know, five or six decades, it really was one of the major contributors of state, you know, GDP. Um, in some sense, a lot of the kind of big names you think of as like California history were actually tied to the oil industry. So the Stanford brothers, uh, of Stanford University fame, made a lot of their money through oil. Uh, obviously, Paul Getty, uh, now you know the Getty Museum and other philanthropies in the LA area, also made their money through oil. 
And so much of the kind of lore and history of California, you know, started off with gold and then really transferred into oil uh, over the course of the first half of the 20th century. Now, that kind of economic activity really kind of peaked uh, around the mid 80s. So California in the mid 80s, you know, went from uh, the third largest producing state in the United States. Um, uh, and since then, since 1985, it's been really declining, uh, almost kind of, you know, a straight decline um, to the point where today the oil producing industry is, you know, ranked seventh in the U.S. So not small, but certainly not the kind of size that, and kind of dominance it enjoyed uh, over much of the 20th century. And its contribution to state GDP has really been also declining. So declining at about 2% per year in the last 20 years. So where are we right now? Uh, oil and gas extraction and refining contributes about 1% today of state GDP, about 0.2% of the state workforce, uh, but actually quite a large percentage of its air pollution. So like 23% of local air pollution still comes from oil and gas extraction and refining and then about 11% of statewide GDP. So it's a story of, you know, uh, historical dominance, uh, decline over the last 30 or 40 years, but one in which it still plays an important role when it comes to the state's climate policy. Right, for sure. And then if we think about you know, the parts of the state where extraction takes place, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I, I think most production happens in Kern County, which is a, a fairly rural county, a couple hours north of Los Angeles. And then there's also production in Los Angeles and around Los Angeles. Uh, and then there's also some offshore production. And then there's a lot of refining in the LA area and then also in the Bay Area. Is that about right? That's, that's absolutely right. So those are the places that, you know, I gave you some kind of very aggregate statewide numbers, but, um, the reality is that in both extraction and refining area activity, it's very spatially concentrated in a few counties. So Kern and Los Angeles for extraction, and then Los Angeles and Contra Costa for refining. And so when we think and when we talk about kind of transitions, low carbon transitions, we have to think very carefully about those particular counties and what will happen to people in those counties uh, as the state decarbonizes. Yeah, absolutely. And th and that's exactly what we're going to talk about for the for the next 25 minutes or so. So, um you know, motivating a lot of this are um announcements that have come from state policymakers related to oil production and related to oil consumption in the state. Um there've been a bunch of, you know, major policy announcements over the last 6 months to a year, I would say. Um can you highlight a couple of the most significant ones and um you know, help us understand what were the the main motivations behind them? Maybe those motivations are fairly obvious, but but can you just yeah, kind of give us some highlights of what those big policies have been? Yeah, so let me take a second to offer a little bit of backdrop for this for climate policy overall in the state. So, as many of you know, California has some of the country's and arguably the world's most ambitious climate policies, uh, setting you know very dramatic decarbonization targets across the board for the next coming decades. If you look at where the state is right now, um, the electricity sector is decarbonizing. Now, maybe someone will say not fast enough, but the adoption of wind and solar um, has accelerated that decline in greenhouse gas emissions. The next kind of 
big area, big contributor of statewide greenhouse gases is really the transportation sector. And when I say transportation sector, I mean both, quote unquote, the supply and the demand. Supply being extraction and refining and demand being, you know, the cars and trucks that people drive. That today is about a little bit over 50% of statewide greenhouse gas emissions. And it's been quite stubborn. So unlike electricity, which has been declining, uh, you know, at a, at a pretty good clip, actually, in the last 15 years, that 51%, or even in like level terms in terms of like greenhouse gas emissions, that's basically been flatlined. So it's pretty stubborn. And so a lot of the focus, because of that backdrop, a lot of the focus for state officials and you know, and, and the government has been, what do we do about this sector? And of course, California is very difficult because it is, you know, a car culture. People often in certain parts of the state, like in LA, have to drive very far distances for commuting. Um, and so really getting, you know, reducing emissions in, in transportation really is the big question moving forward for California. So, okay, so in that backdrop, what is the state doing? So, I think the state has been very wise in considering jointly policies on the demand side as well as policies on the supply side. So demand, again, I'm talking mostly about, you know, how do you change uh, patterns of, you know, essentially gasoline consumption, right, by uh, vehicles and, you know, trucks and so forth. And then on the supply side, th thinking about reducing activity or, you know, emissions from the extraction uh, and refining of fossil fuels. Why is both important? Well, the problem is you, don't, you can't have one without the other, right? So if you just have a supply side policy, right? But you don't change demand for, uh, you know, gasoline. Well, then California would just continue importing oil from the rest of the world, okay? If you just have a demand side policy without a supply side policy, well, then it's possible, though not necessarily given, but it's possible then California would just export the oil that it produces, right? And then we kind of like are in maybe like the Norway case where, you know, you can, you know, decarbonize, you know, you kind of people buy all kinds of EVs, but, you know, your, your, your oil producers are still supplying oil to the rest of the world. So you need to do both. And, and so the state has been trying to, you know, introducing policies in lockstep to try to get it both. So on the demand side, there's a whole series of policies, you know, various different subsidies for essentially uh, incentivizing electrification of vehicles. There is the low carbon fuel standard. Um, uh, and those, you know, hopefully will drive down essentially the, the cost of uh, electric vehicles such that more and more Californians can purchase them. Um, so basically on the demand side, it's really a strategy about electrifying uh, the vehicle fleet. On, on the, sorry, that's on the demand side. On the supply side, there, uh, first of all, there is the uh, cap and trade program that California has, which is a carbon price, and that carbon price is applied to refiners um, and large, uh, you know, and, and extractors. So that's one policy. But then on top of that, there's been a series of policies. Uh, some of them right now just like kind of introduced by the governor, other like pieces of legislation that have been considered. So for example, you know, a ban on hydraulic fracking, uh, setbacks on new oil wells. So, you know, oil wells are 
uh, located oftentimes near where people live, particularly sensitive sites like where hospitals are, schools are, and other kind of quote unquote sensitive pieces of infrastructure. Um, and so you can actually ban the drilling of wells near those. And so that's something that's got a lot of attention. Uh, and it's actually a proposal that uh, the governor has recently made. And then there's also other things like excise taxes, like, you know, uh, or sometimes called severance tax, where you're actually taxing the production of uh, crude oil. So these are a, a number of policies being considered. Uh, some of it have been introduced as legislation. They haven't all quite gotten through the legislative process yet, but there's a lot of debate right now about how do you, you know, uh, introduce supply-side policies that would match what's going to hopefully uh, occur on the demand side. Yeah, great. That That's such a great overview. And and as we often do on the show, we're covering deeply complex topics in a really quick uh, and concise manner. So um, yeah, thanks so much for helping us do that. So if we think about, you know, let's say the next 10, 20, 30 years, um, you know, as California seeks to reduce not only its oil consumption, but also its oil production, can you talk a little bit about uh, what some of the implications are for oil producing regions and particularly Kern County, which is, um, you know, really where most of the extraction in the state takes place and also the place where, you know, the industry is just, it just plays a really big role in the local economy and also for local taxes. So can you talk a little bit about Kern County? Yeah, so Kern County is a very important focal point in all of this. Um, since the 1970s, it's, it's basically, it produces about 71% of statewide oil production. So when you talk about oil production, much of the action is occurring in Kern. Now, that, there, now this manifests in many different ways. It manifests in jobs, it manifests in local air pollution, and as you mentioned, maybe something that's not as well understood or at least not well publicized is that also manifests in terms of local tax revenue. In terms of employment itself, according to, you know, kind of your standard go-to government figures, um, the total amount of um, kind of, you know, jobs in the sector is about 2 to 3% of um, jobs in Kern County. So, you know, not a huge amount, but still, you know, important. And actually, these are fairly well-paid jobs in Kern County. So that's an important thing to consider. But it also contributes about, you know, almost like 40% of local pollution emissions. Now, this is in terms of like criteria, pollutants, and toxic chemicals uh, across the state. So it's a major contributor to the air quality in the area. So a lot of the kind of tension around Kern has been about, well, jobs on the one hand and air quality on the other. But the other thing that's very important to note is that uh, the oil and gas sector actually contributes a major share of the tax base for Kern County. So something about 15 to 20% of property taxes come in from oil and gas producers. In fact, that's seven of the top biggest taxpayers uh, in Kern County for property taxes come in from oil and gas. Now, this is important because these are the taxes that actually fund local schools, public health, uh, and, you know, roads and infrastructure, a lot of the, you know, public goods that local kind of, uh, you know, government provides. And so when we think about what happens to this sector in this county, we're not just only talking about 
jobs and air quality, but we're actually talking about the kind of very fabric, of, like the social fabric or the kind of funds that kind of contribute to the social fabric uh, uh, of these communities. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, as, as we're talking about this, I, I just want to point listeners to a report that you co-authored with Olivier Duchenne and over a dozen other co-authors. Um, the report's called Enhancing Equity While Eliminating Emissions in California Supply of Transportation Fuels. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, of course, so people can quickly get to it. Um, but it's a really great study that um, sort of outlines these these issues and, and estimates some of the potential effects under different policy scenarios. Um, so you know of what you speak. <laughs> um, so that's oil extraction. Let's turn now to oil refining, uh, which, as we said earlier, you know, mostly takes place around Los Angeles and the Bay Area. So can you talk a little bit about what some of the implications are of these new and emerging policies for the refining sector in California? Yeah, so the refining sector is also very spatially concentrated. Basically, there's, I think, about 15 refineries in California, and they're all basically like clustered in two locations, Los Angeles County and Contra Costa County. It is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions across all of the industrial sectors in California. And... Whereas I described in extraction, uh, there's been a kind of a decline in activity over the last three decades. That's not really been happening in terms of refining output. Now, that's just largely because Californians are still driving a lot of cars, right? And most of the refineries are basically producing oil products for consumption in California. And so much of that is basically flatline, consistent with what I was telling you earlier about how greenhouse gases uh, from uh, from the demand side have, have you know, not really quite fallen. So these are um, uh, very large facilities, very polluting. So just to give you, you know, two data points, in these two counties, like Los Angeles County, over 60% of emissions, point source emissions, come from the handful of refineries in Los Angeles. In Contra Costa County, also about 65% of uh, point source emissions come from, again, a handful of these refineries. So thinking about what to do about these refineries is going to be very important. And in particular, whether or not, you know, what kind of future they have as California decarbonizes. One of the things that, you know, we can talk about, you know, electrification of the vehicle fleet, well, that will certainly reduce demand for the products from these refineries. But there's still going to be demand for them in the sense that, for example, jet fuel is a product from a lot of these refineries. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, you know, there will still be demand coming in from jet fuel, you know, to 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 power flights out of California, and those products are going to be coming out from these refineries. Yeah. And so, you know, you've, you've mentioned the air pollution issue uh, a couple times, both with regard to extraction and refining. And, you know, these are really big issues, um, both in and around oil producing sites and, and especially refining sites. I mean, there's a lot of uh, concern around environmental justice impacts in particular around refineries across the United States, but but also in, in California. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the public health implications of the emissions that you talked about earlier uh, and what some of these changes in policies might mean for the people living, you know, close to where these activities take place? Yeah, one of the very striking uh, realities is that, for example, oil extraction and refining, not only do these activities contribute to a lot of you know, emissions, but 
because of where they're situated and where disadvantaged communities and households live, a lot of that pollution is borne by disadvantaged communities, low-income communities, communities of color. And so one of the very striking realities is that as you try to reduce emissions from extraction and refining in these areas, not only do you have overall benefits in terms of you know, reduced mortality or mobility from you know, uh, arising from cleaner air, but actually a large share of those benefits are likely to be borne by disadvantaged communities. And that's something that I think it's important to note. It's, you know, we know that in California, as well as elsewhere in the country, there are vast disparities in pollution exposure between the haves and the have-nots. That in general, in a very systematic pattern, you know, individuals in disadvantaged communities are exposed to dirtier air. And so when you reduce emissions uh, or you reduce you know, toxins and air criteria, air pollution emissions from extraction and refinery, uh, much of that kind of benefit actually ends up being borne by uh, individuals in these communities in the form of cleaner air. And we think that's an important consequence uh, of trying to reduce uh, supply of California's oil and gas industry. That is, a lot of that benefit will actually uh, be borne by uh, disadvantaged communities. Yeah, absolutely. And this this issue just always strikes me. I mean, I imagine most of our listeners have been to Los Angeles at some point in their lives, but you know, you can drive around Los Angeles and probably not notice oil wells. But if you go looking for them, they're not hard to find at all, and you can see them, you know, in lots of your communities. And and they are disproportionately located in in lower income communities, and often very close to where people live and work. I remember. I went through a drive-through at a, a at an In-N-Out I think once, and there was literally like a, a an oil well like next to the drive-through that was pumping up and down as I sat there and like ate my French fries or whatever. Um, yeah, so some of these activities are just really close to where people live and work. That's right. That's right. In fact, we have we have a couple of wells, uh, kind of old relic wells, right next to campus here at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So it's, we see it every single day. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one issue that I'm always fascinated by that I'd love to hear, um, you know, your comments on is about how different communities kind of feel about these big changes uh, to policy that that is going to affect fossil fuel extraction and refining in the state. I mean, it's easy to imagine a really wide range of reactions, right, from environmental justice communities who are probably, you know, supportive of less refining happening near where they live uh, to, you know, oil workers or elected officials in Kern County who really care about that tax base and those jobs. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of range of perspectives that you're seeing cropping up in response to the policy measures that you talked about earlier? It's a very good question. It's often portrayed in, I would say, very contentious terms in the sense that there is kind of an us versus them dichotomy of on the one side there's jobs and then the other side you know there are uh people breathing in uh dirty air and in particular like people from disadvantaged communities i think the reality as always is the case is much more complicated right the same people who worry about the jobs are also the same people who would benefit from cleaner air um and in my view there are opportunities here that wouldn't make this as much as as like a zero-sum game as it looks like it is. So to give you an example, 
there's a lot of talk about, for example, like setbacks as a way to phase out oil and gas. And one of the things that setbacks provide is that it definitely helps in reducing uh, exposure from pollution of oil and gas production near sensitive sites. But it also just completely shuts down economic activity and also would affect, you know, demand for jobs in those areas. Um, so there are questions about like, is there a way to make people whole somehow, as opposed to just shutting down their economic livelihoods? And so uh, also in consideration are, for example, like excise taxes, which like any tax would reduce activity, but would also raise revenue. And that revenue, for example, can be used to both help with, you know, the labor market transition or the just transition, if you will, or it could be used to actually bolster lost um, oil and gas revenue from the lost tax base. So there are ways, I think, where you can phase out production and in a way that tries to make these communities or the impacted communities whole. I think that the broader question actually here is even absent climate policy or you know the state's effort to decarbonize, this industry is a declining industry. And I think that's just a reality. Like California oil production is just not going to be able to compete in the global oil market because of how costly it is at this point to extract oil. And so some of this is already happening. Uh, the question is, how do you do it in a way that kind of doesn't lead to, you know, dramatic, you know, economic displacement or losses? Yeah. Yeah, those are such great points. And, you know, listeners probably don't know this, but, you know, I, um, you know I've worked a lot on severance taxes and tax policy related to oil. And California is one of the very few states that doesn't have any meaningful you know, statewide severance tax on, on oil and gas production. Pretty much every other state does. Um, the oil sector contributes to these local taxes quite considerably, uh, but much less so at the statewide level. And then the other maybe piece of context that um, is worth remembering is there have been uh, lots of booms around the United States uh, over the last 10 or 15 years in oil and gas extraction. But California really has not been one of those places that's experienced it for reasons that are like geological and economic. Um, the formations that produce oil in California aren't suitable to the same technologies that are being applied in, let's say, the Permian Basin, where there's been a rapid growth. So so you're totally right when you say oil extraction is you know, on a seemingly perpetual um, state of decline in California. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. So, uh, Kyle, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is just asking you to reflect a little bit on what we might learn from California's experience. Obviously, we're kind of in the early days of these these policies, but California is really the first state in the U.S. that's a major oil producing state that is actually taking concrete steps to reduce that oil production. So, you know, are there any lessons we can learn at this point that might be applied to other states in the United States? Or if there aren't, what types of things are you going to be looking for to learn that can inform, you know, other states as they transition to a net zero future? That's a very good question. It's a very big question. Uh, I think it's one that many of us are wrestling with. I, I would say that there are successful economic transitions and there are unsuccessful economic transitions, right? So to give a famous example, what, what I would argue has been unsuccessful has been like the decline of manufacturing in the U.S. over the last few decades uh, in the Midwest and elsewhere and how it led to you know, pretty dramatic displacement of 
of of jobs and workers in much of the country that a lot of which we're we're seeing the consequence of now, uh, you know, politically uh, and in other forms. I think those concerns are really valid when we think about low carbon transitions. We like in California, there is you know a transition going on, but I think the reality is that as we think carefully about a low carbon future, there are many ways to reduce emissions, but not all are you know created equal. Um, so, what are some kind of important criteria? I think it's important to recognize that in places where the local economy really does depend on fossil fuels and carbon intensive activities. You know, a successful transition really means a one in which somehow the kind of brown to green transition manages to preserve, you know, the skills, the livelihoods, and in many sense, the broader dignity of the people who work in that sector. What does that mean? I think it means finding ways to kind of help them see that they can participate in this low carbon future, whether that is in specifically in green jobs, if you will, uh, but just for them to have a way to be able to participate in this economy, because otherwise the displacement can have very important and very negative political consequences. So I think there's a lot of conversations being had here in California and elsewhere about what that means. It's sometimes called a just transition. How does government step in? Where can government revenue from different climate policies come in to help with that labor transition? I think that's something that a lot of us are thinking very carefully about. But I think it's important to think about policies that doesn't just shut down activity, but reduces the thing we don't want, which is greenhouse gases and local pollution, but also somehow facilitates this transition. So an excise tax or severance tax, I think, is actually a pretty positive way of doing that because you raise revenue, you can use that revenue to offset some of the local economic losses. The other thing that I think is very important, and this is hard because we have this romantic notion here in California, we do as well, of like the way things are done. You know, like it used to be in certain parts, we just produce oil or in certain parts, we just we produce, you know, cereals. Uh, you know, I think like there's, there needs to be a focus less on like specific places and different modes of production in those places and more in the people. So, for example, it might very well be that places like Kern County, even absent climate policy, would not have a future where oil and gas production is the dominant economic driver. OK, but. But what about the people there? Maybe we can get rid of that notion, but how do you actually preserve economic kind of opportunities for the people there as opposed to for that particular sector? And I think that focus allows you to think more carefully about like how do you, again, to my earlier point, maintaining the dignity and kind of livelihoods for the people who are actually going to suffer direct economic losses. Yeah, that's a great point and, and a great way of thinking about it and, and a good note to, to close on. So um, let's go now, Kyle, to uh, the top of the stack, your literal or metaphorical reading stack, um, asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you've enjoyed and that you think our listeners might enjoy too. So what's at the top of your stack? So I, uh, given uh, how much I'm involved I am on environmental issues, I try very hard not to read about the environment directly when I have yes, free time. I, I also have young children. <laughs> So uh, the top of my stack literally right now is like the catalog of Calvin and Hobbes books that my seven-year-old uh, has recently uh, discovered and I'm delighted by. Um, when I do have time, I, I like to, especially in our kind of current very polarized times, I like to read about periods in which um, 
major progress was made on important issues in a way that kind of traversed the kind of political divides of our time. So I love, for example, reading like Robert Carroll's work on LBJ and about how, you know, this politician from the hill country of Texas managed ultimately to make some pretty important progressive policies in the U.S. in a period of great like political divide. So like, you know, we're still waiting for that final book about, you know, the passage of, 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 of those policies and we might never get there. But reading about that period and also kind of Carol's kind of research gives me some kind of hope and kind of historical context about a lot of the, the issues that we're dealing with today, uh, particularly around environmental policy at the national level. So I like those books and they give me a historical perspective that just trying to keep up with the minute to minute news doesn't quite provide me with. That is great. And you know, what's funny is that um, your both your recommendations span uh, three generations in my family. So my three-year-old is really into Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, really? really? He has no idea what it's about, but he still, he likes the tiger. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad uh, loves those Robert Caro books about LBJ. So uh, recommendations that are very pertinent to the Ramey family. Um, great. Well, Kyle Meng from UCSB, thank you so much again for coming on the show today, helping us understand the state of the energy transition in California and the policies that they're implementing. Uh, it's just been a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for the time, and I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.